0: From the fallout of the ongoing pandemic, businesses have seen major disruptions to global supply chains and a renewed customer preference for Australian-owned and made businesses and products. By manufacturing in Australia, GME is able to produce high-quality, reliable products that consumers want whilst also keeping local manufacturing jobs. A win-win for everyone. As an Australian-owned and operated business, GME openly embraces Australian manufacturing and is proud to release the only Australian-made handheld UHF-CB radio, the TX6600S. The TX6600S underwent all stages of its development at the GME head office in Western Sydney. This included industrial testing, on-site warehousing and national distribution – by completing this all in Australia, it ensures that GME can bring products to market faster than those that rely on importing goods from overseas. These internal measures also enable JMA to ensure the TX6600S and other products are manufactured to the highest quality. GME products are brought to market through stringent in-house quality assurance practices and backed by an ISO 9001 manufacturing accreditation to ensure product reliability and to uphold the quality that GME is renowned for. Like all GME products, the TX6600S is built tough like the Australian Outback and comes with a rugged IP67 ingress protection rating to ensure exceptional performance and years of reliable use in the harshest work environment. It was designed to suit a wide range of demanding commercial applications from agriculture to construction, mining, councils and countless other industries that require stable and dependable communication to get the job done safely and efficiently. So remember... Wherever life takes you, take GME. You're listening to the Central Station Podcast where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home.
1: Welcome back to the Central Station podcast. I am so excited to bring you our first episode for 2021. My guest today is an amazing woman named Tanya Heaslip. Tanya was raised on a cattle station north of Alice Springs during the 1960s and 70s. The stories from her childhood sound like something out of a book, too wild and wonderful to be true. As it turns out, they are so extraordinary that Tanya has published them into a memoir called An Alice Girl, which was released in May 2020. In this episode, we chat about what Tanya's childhood on a remote cattle station was like back in those days, and how it shaped the rest of her life. Because, as you'll come to learn in this episode, Tanya went on to become an accomplished lawyer who has worked on the Azaria Chamberlain Inquiry... She's travelled the world and even lived in Prague and is now the author of two books. Not bad for someone who used to go to school for 30 minutes a day over a two-way radio. To start, I asked Tanya what she was currently watching, reading or listening to at the moment.
2: Well, my um, guilty delight is... Well, revolves around thrillers really of any kind. To me that's the greatest escapism. So I've just finished The Other Man by Jane Harper, who wrote The Dry. Oh Yes. And it's set up I think in Queensland. Is that on a cattle station? Yes, yes. That that will be in our
1: book club, I think. I have read that. That is did you you didn't did you expect that? No,
2: I didn't see it coming. It was really good. It was really good. What I thought was so clever is that Jane Harper has no background of the bush but she wrote really compellingly. There were the few odd parts and spots you could identify where it was an outsider's perspective or she was writing as an outsider, but for the most part you wouldn't have known and the plot was brilliant and you could feel the heat. She's very clever. She makes the land a character in her books and she's done that for her other books as well. But I I think that The Lost Man is my number one pick, followed by The Dry. Not many people write thrillers set in the outback. Now you're seeing more of it on television, so Mystery Road, for example, which is that's set in the west but involves cattle stations and the bush. But to actually have a thriller set on a cattle station is unusual and exciting. So yes, and let's be honest, mm. ninety percent of anything written on
1: cattle stations or farms is rural romance. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it is nice to have something really different. Yes, And it is very different. There was certainly no no lovey-dovey feelings in this book. <laughs> there were none. No. And what about, are you watching anything at the moment?
2: Again, guilty pleasure, and it's called Endeavour. So now this is a complete opposite. Um, Endeavour is the young version of Morse. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of Morse, but it was a brilliant Detective. I was just going to say, Inspector yes. Morse sounds in familiar. Inspector Morse set in Oxford, and so Endeavour is a prequel. It, it's oh. when he's starting out. So, it's just sublime. We're here in Central Australia, and then we're transported to Oxford, the city of spires, and the only other place called the city of spires is Prague, which we'll come to. Um So, looking at Oxford and all these beautiful buildings, and then. Watching Endeavour, who's incredibly handsome. <laughs> find the baddies.
1: I will He's Google just this. Just <laughs> sheer pleasure, sheer pleasure. And where can our listeners find that? Is that a Netflix series or no? ABC iView. Oh, brilliant! Free to free to stream then. Yes, everyone get amongst it. Yes, yes. Um, and what about listening? Are there any? Are you a podcast listener?
2: Not as much, and it's not because I don't love podcasts. It's because I never find the time, which is. Really strange. The time that I'd usually listen would be during the day and I'm always working and I have um, music in the background. So to listen to something, I really need to carve out the time and that is one of my goals for 2021, to do that more because I'll only watch, say, Endeavour in the evening after dinner if Mm -hmm. I watch it and then if I've got any spare time, I'll read. So podcasts or anything. Anything on the radio, I must confess, comes third. But I love podcasts. I love them. And when I fly, that's all I listen to. I'll, I don't watch anything. I go straight to the podcast. And I listen to music, like um classical music of oh. all things, which once upon a time I never would have listened to. But classical music is really good for stimulating the brain. Really? Yes. And it's so relaxing to listen to and it helps me get in the zone. Every now and then I try and listen to music I really love that I grew up with and sometimes country music, but that just distracts me so much. Yeah. I'm back in the song where I'm singing along. Yeah. But classical I don't sing to and it's just there and it helps me focus. So it's interesting as you sort of go through life the different types of music and entertainment forms of entertainment that you've drawn to i knew i was getting old when i
1: voluntarily <laughs> watched sbs <laughs> i was like oh, i love a good sbs show now oh, no, we love a good oh, sbs is fantastic i know but when i was younger dad would come home and turn off you know the simpsons and put on abc news or something right. and we'd just crack it you know She's yeah
2: <laughs> wouldn't have a bar <laughs> of
1: it <laughs> oh uh, goodness Lourdes. so i'm so excited to talk to you today um you are a well, there's people are going to find out, I won't give it away, but mm. you've done so many things and lived such a wonderful, colorful life. Oh, um, and I guess a lot of that stems from your childhood, and that's probably going to be a big focus of our conversation today because. As an author, you are a great storyteller. I know we talked about Jane Harper being a great writer, but I'm reading your book and Alice Gill at the moment, and from the first page, you've just painted a picture for me and I can visualise myself right there. Um, it's it's just been incredible. So for people who aren't familiar with you and haven't had the privilege and pleasure to read your books yet, <laughs> tell me a bit about your family history and how it all came to be.
2: Wow. Well, let's start at the very beginning, as Julie Andrews once said in the Sound of Music, because it's a very good place oh, to actually, start. actually, you kind of look like Julie Andrews. Oh, that's a compliment. There
1: we go. So, for anybody listening, I mean, go look up. Obviously, you'll be going and searching Tanya on, <laughs> on all the socials. Um I've been calling her like a, a Julie Bishop, oh. but actually, there is some really Julie. You just got the Julie vibe. I've got Julie, the Julie vibe. Julie Bishop.
2: <gasps> Julie Andrews. Oh my goodness! This is so exciting. <laughs> Um but it didn't begin with any glamour uh, so I grew up here in central Australia and my parents came from the Flinders Ranges of South Australia which was all sheep country but they were both adventurers and they wanted um they wanted to try out new opportunities new places dad was passionate about the land and stock and mum really wanted to spread her wings and they fell in love with central australia because it was wild and beautiful and untamed and up here nobody cared where you came from nobody asked what religion you were in back in south australia in those days protestants versus the catholics was a really big thing it separated the little towns you couldn't go to each other's churches you couldn't marry in each other's churches it was really a very very constrained existence particularly after the war so mum and dad wanted to flee that and they found here in alice this place of free thinking wild living um have a go people and they fell in love with it and they bought this little block north of Alice called Bond Springs, past release. And they bought it during the drought, the end of a 10-year drought, because they couldn't afford anything else. And everyone said it was unviable. It had only ever been run as an adjunct to other cattle stations. But they thought, we're going to have a go anyway. And they had a little sheep place in the Flinders. So they came here and for the first three years the government held this Guillotine over their head and said at the end of three years, if you haven't improved it and you haven't raised stocking levels, basically this place had been decimated by the drought. There were only 150 cows, poor old scrawny cows when they came and, and nothing else, no bulls, no steers for sale, nothing. And they said, we'll take it all back from you and whatever you've sunk will be, you know, sunk costs lost. So they had three years where they could have lost everything and they just worked and worked and they had three children under four. Um, me I was four and Melissa was my sister was three and Brett was one. How old were your parents at the time? Oh, 25, 26. Oh my goodness. They were so brave. They got married at twenty one, had me at twenty two and then they just you know, they were often racing. To be so young. I'm so far away from family. Oh, And can you imagine, this was 1965, so there was no communication except for letters and telegrams if they came into Alice. Uh, and also Dad was raised with sheep, not cattle. So he had no experience with cattle and he had no experience with this land. And the Flinders Ranges is saltbush country, very different to Central Australia. So he learnt on the job and mum, you know, had these children and a house full of red dust because of the sandstorms that were continuous and a whole stock camp to feed. So they they just ran and ran and worked and worked and they were so passionate and determined. And I think for our whole lives, we four, because there's four of us now, Benny came along when I was seven, um, How we could never live up to what they achieved because as you say, to be so young and passionate and take on what they took on was just extraordinary. So they worked and worked. And um, we kids, as soon as we could work, were put to work as well. As soon as we could ride, we learned to ride and we were in the stock camp. My youngest memories are in the back of the Land Rover doing bore runs, the endless, never-ending tedium of bore runs. And all us kids squashed in there. Um, and then as soon as we could Right, as I said, we were in the stock camp for weeks, every school holiday, and then we did during the term correspondence school lessons that came up from Adelaide. Um, On the GAN, if the GAN got stuck, we wouldn't get our lessons or we wouldn't get our marked lessons back and we'd send off our lessons and it could be four or five weeks before we got our marks back. We were given two weeks' worth of work at a time and then in addition to that, we had School of the Air, which was half an hour each day with the School of the Air in Alice Springs, which to me was joy. It was theatre. It was other people. It was this, it was the most exciting thing in my whole life was School of the Air. <laughs> really? And so this is obviously back in the days when it was on a two
1: way radio. Yes, yes. So
2: how did all of that work? Uh, well, it was quite tricky because static was the main problem. Um, VJD, which was uh, the, VJD was the headquarters of the Royal Flying Doctor Service in town and the School of the Air used their system. So they had a strong signal, but people living on cattle stations for a 700-mile radius, you could imagine that lots of places and people you could hardly hear. But it would start with, um, so, for example, Monday was assembly, so all the kids would come and, and um, the teacher would say, oh, this is VJD, um, School of the Air, good morning here, girls and boys. It's Mrs. Hodder or Mr. Ashton. Uh, now we're going to stand for the national anthem. And they would play God Save the Queen and we kids would all stand wherever we were and you could hear over the static <laughs> all these kids, their voices chiming, falling over each other, singing God Save the Queen. And um, then there'd be half an hour for each grade for the rest of the week. So say it was Tuesday and it was English, which was my favourite. Mrs. Hodder was my beloved teacher and so she'd do a roll call, good morning, Tanya from Sierra Victor Uniform, are you there? Over. And I'd say, oh, good morning, Mrs. Hodder, it's Tanya here. Yes, I can read you loud and clear. Over. <laughs> and then she'd go through to all the other kids and then we do reading and so she would read aloud to us or they would send through by mail um, books or stories that we could could read from and so we'd practice our reading and she'd go to each one and we'd all have to practice and mass was the same and um but it was very simple it was English mass, social studies um not a lot else but half an hour each day and there could be up to 10 children in each class but in my grade six and seven there were only two of us Lee Turner from Jenker Station and me
1: Wow. Mm. And so you said your your uh, curriculum was mailed out to you, then you would, uh, you would complete it and then send it away and have to wait four or five weeks. Mm.
2: To the to- correspondence school. Yes. And so I feel like that is the ultimate um, example of delayed gratification. <laughs> oh, yes. You are so right because we would send off our two weeks' worth of marks not knowing how long it would be till they came back. When they came back. You know, did we even remember what we'd done? Sometimes a month, month and a half ago, but we'd just tear open the mail that had come in from Adelaide and look for the gold stars and <gasps> taking a deep breath when there were red lines oh. and crosses. And <laughs> but we had this beautiful teacher, Mrs. Layton, who. Um, was our teacher in the Correspondence School in Adelaide. We never met her, never heard her, never saw her, but we loved her because we knew her through the comments she wrote to us and she was our teacher for the seven years of primary school. So she saw us grow up and she saw our work develop and that was absolutely amazing. And then in my last year in Grade 7, the School of the Air in Alice Springs started taking over the Adelaide Correspondence work. So in effect... They became a combined correspondence school and school of the air.
1: Oh, okay. So when you, so you'd have your, your work mailed out from Adelaide and then it was with that teacher, but it was a different
2: teacher mm. that would talk to you over the two way. Yes. And she would send out her own stuff to us, but it was very simple. Um, it would be books or it would be, um, you know, mass examples. So in a sense, it was a duplication, but it was very, very basic with school of the air. The, greater focus was on interaction rather than the actual you kind know, of academic quality of the work uh, and but I, I suppose that's why and I'm, I've never actually found out how it happened but School of the Air here obviously decided it was um, prudent for them and for them in the long term to take over that work and I think Correspondence School thought it was a, a good idea and now of course school of the air here does everything so there's no such thing as correspondence school for bush kids in central australia anymore i don't think at least not the way we did it yeah
1: i want to um if it's all right circle back to this idea of of the delayed gratification and having to wait for things to come because i'm guessing that might have been an ongoing theme in your entire childhood not just with school work but with so many other things can you tell me a bit more about
2: that Very intuitive question, (laughs) insightful, um, thought provoking, yeah. I think that's true. Our childhood was all about delayed gratification. The thing we loved almost, the thing we loved to eat more than anything with, um, those little Arnott's chocolate delta creams they were called. And when we'd go mustering, we'd be constantly perishing and starving because you'd leave in the morning, you'd have dinner camp if you're lucky at midday and then nothing until you got back at night. And it'd be stinking hot. And we were little kids and we'd be out all day, either freezing winter or you know, heat stroke struck in summer. <laughs> and so we'd have a little um saddlebag on our horse and in that we'd have one orange and two Delta creams that's all that could fit so we would have to uh, and then on the other side was the water bag which had to last all day and then you'd get something at dinner camp and but you'd end up having so little to drink and so little to eat and we were constantly as I said our tongues were just thick with thirst and our stomachs were always growling but you'd have to hold on you had to train yourself not to to drink too much, because the worst thing would be if you drank too much, Dad said you'd get soft and then you'd be really thirsty and you'd die. So we had to learn not to drink, and then Dad didn't really care about the food, but there wasn't much of it anyway when we were out there, but we had to teach ourselves to hold on and wait for the right time for that Delta cream or that bit of orange which was half liquid, half food, but sweet and kept going. So those those days of being thirsty and hungry have never left me actually never never left it was all about hanging out until the last minute you could have that little treat and so school was the same and I think life in the bush there were you know there was no other entertainment there was there was nothing that you could gratify yourself with except for me were books and stories, and that was my great love. And so I'd wait for Mum to come back from her trips to town with a box of books from School of the Air, and then I'd devour them, absolutely devour them, and they were almost all Enid Blyton books. That's where my love of thrillers came, I'm convinced, because Enid Blyton is the ultimate thriller writer. Really? Yes. Two to three pages each chapter, ends with a cliffhanger every time. It's children out having adventures without the parents, baddies and the kids always win the day and it goes through the classic um narrative arc of getting scarier and scarier and scarier and you think all is lost and then finally the kids win out at the end yeah you know, it's been a good 20 25 years since i've read an enid blighton book mm. but i feel like i'm gonna go have to pick one up now you do that you will see We're the narrative arc of- she was ahead of her time and uh, hundreds, thousands, probably millions of kids around the world become addicted to thrillers without even knowing it as adults because if you go back and look at how she plotted all her books, that's what they were, child thrillers. So that for me, when I dived into them, I had no self-restraint. I devoured them. But then I'd have to wait for the next three weeks until mum went back into town to get the next lot of books and I'm sure I completely ran school of the air out of books I, I, I read everything that they could send. It
1: sounds just so different from the childhood experience in today's day and age where instant gratification is, is everything. You know, you can yeah. turn on the TV, you know, if you've got an iPad or an iPhone, you know, go to the fridge, like whatever, you know, as a child, it, regardless of how you're being raised, like it is just completely different. So I'm just wondering how you think that's influenced your life. I suppose we'll come to that later as we go go through your story a bit. So um, you were saying, so I, I will come back to that. I just want to make a note of it, and I have on my on my
2: little notepad here, so we don't miss out on that. And, and I can tell you, it'll all come down to one word: discipline. Yeah, Yes. yes, yeah. Yes. Yes. Trained me, disciplined me for my whole life. Life, yes. Um, your dad or your mum should write a book. Yeah. About-
1: <laughs> How to raise superstar <laughs> children because you turned out pretty good. Um, but what about even, I suppose, again, like, you know, having to wait for things, you would have had to wait – for friends, You know, like you wouldn't have seen, you know, you would have maybe spoken to people over School of the Air, but
2: did you ever get to meet your friends from School of the Air? Oh, well, now here's a perfect example of delay gratification. I met my best friend in the whole world, Janie Joson from Everard Park, who lived 700 miles south of here um, on a cattle station just under the South Australian border and we were on school of the air together in not grade one but grade two and we became best friends immediately over the air during our lessons and we would try and sneak and have little discussions in the afternoon skeds in between all the you know cattle station people getting on to talk about important things like you know getting delivery of a boar part or where they were in the mustering camp at that moment um and i had to wait three years we had to wait three years before we could meet oh. and we begged and begged and begged our parents but you know, this was the sixties. You, you, Jamie and I might as well have lived on different continents. We might as well have had an ocean between us. Um, so we, it was only an enormous amount of persistence and begging on our parts. Finally, I got to go with Mum and Dad to the Dada races, and Jamie was competing there with her family. And I finally got to meet him. I think we were nine, age nine. So it was like having a pen pal people used to do and in the olden days and um meeting her for the first time so that was extraordinary and our whole life and we are still best friends today being punctuated by distances and only seeing fragments of each other from time to time although we got four years of boarding school together, which is a different oh, story. Yes. And I can come to that later. But the rest of the time it's been like that. And then on Year School of the Year, all our other friends, we met them only at cattle or horse-related events. So the Alice Springs Show or the Amberla Camp Draft, the Aileron Camp Draft, the Colgra Camp Draft, the Hearts Range Camp Draft, or they were Jim Gymkhana's or race meetings interchangeably. So that's where... We would meet them and sometimes it would be six months or a year because we weren't all at the same camp drafts or gymkhana's or race meetings together. But they were the events that drew bush people together and people would travel three days with their horses and trucks to get there and then we kids would all meet and run around like little feral lunatics just running and shrieking for the whole time with excitement at seeing our friends. Do you think...
1: I suppose I'm, I'm of the opinion that the quality of interactions was perhaps a little bit higher back then relative today um, when people are, you know, with – you know, today we sit down with someone and we might check our phone or kind of be distracted or, you know, we can be out in a stock camp somewhere but still very much living in the city we've come from or whatnot by following things on social media. Do you think your quality of interactions was stronger because you – didn't get to see people that often or because you didn't have the distractions as well with technology?
2: I think what it did was ensure that wherever you were, you were really present and really focused. We, I think, were blessed not to grow up in an age of social media. There's huge benefits to social media, but there, you, you can already see the difficulties arising for children whose entire lives are you know, taken over by social media um we were so present wherever we were um and we might have always you know been longing to do something else but when we met the quality of our connection was so strong we'd been waiting for it we'd been longing for it we didn't miss a moment we made the most i think of every single moment the major distraction was adult cause expecting mum to call us to do jobs or come and clean our boots and get ready for a bath or it was dad calling us out to the stock camp or down to the horse yards or up to the cattle yards or off on a bull run so we were forever trying to hide from <laughs> those. But, but they were um not distractions of our choice and we my our distractions of choice were for me books and for all of us horses and then the landscape, and I spent most of my childhood wandering in this really dreamy way all through the bush, completely safe, completely connected, telling myself stories. And I don't have that capacity now. I've lost it because of, of the life that I've led. But back then I was so connected to everything around me and I think that was magical really. I was so lucky. Sounds like you had an incredible imagination. Yes. I think that I was really lucky to have that anyway, but my sister and two brothers do as well. They're all musical. They all write music. They all play um, music. So I think we were lucky we all had that, but we were encouraged by mum with books and stories and then just that vast emptiness, we only had each other, we had no other friends around us on a daily basis. Our, our friends were each other and our pets, you know, the dogs, the potty calf, the little joey, um, cattle in the yards maybe. Uh, so there was nothing to fetter our imaginations and we just, like, they ran wild. Really, we just created stories and plays all the time. We constantly put on little plays that we'd make up, um, for long suffering parents and all the people on the station, all the stockmen and the governesses and the bookkeeper and whoever else was there. That'd all have to line up at night after dinner and we kids would go onto the lawn and make up plays. Can you tell do you remember any of them? I'm dying well, the, to know. Well, the best one was called The Deathly Murder. So we didn't, didn't quite appreciate the tautology there and we didn't know why the adults fell about laughing, but it was these, you know, we dressed up in sheets. So part, some Brett, my brother, was a ghost and there was someone, you know, who was this brilliant stockman galloping, chasing cattle through the night and somebody got killed and there was blood and daggers and there wasn't really blood, it was mum's tomato sauce. <laughs> <laughs> and the pair, everyone fell off their chairs laughing and we were outraged because we thought it was such a terrifying your experience. But we were we lived out of our imagination, I think. That sounds <laughs> so incredible. What else did you guys get up to out there? How did you keep yourselves occupied? Well, we were really busy. I think the life back then was very hard and very physical. So we we had not a lot of downtime. Um and it was very structured. That was mum. So we were up at, you know, six thirty in the morning, up, make bed, get dressed, you know. Shirt, jeans, boots into breakfast. We had to water mum's pot plants. We had to feed the chooks. We had to feed the horses. We had, da-da. we had half an hour then to school. And then it was school till one o'clock. And then the afternoon, that's when dad took us to work. So we'd be then on bore runs or we'd be getting in the horses or we'd be, um, drafting at the yards. And then it'd be back to clean boots, bath, um, dinner. And then we'd have a short time after. And this was something mum, really made possible for us, she or the governess or mostly the governess because mum was feeding multitude, but would read us stories. So we'd have about half an hour of a story before bed. But in between these times, whenever we could, and especially in the afternoon, that's when we would, if we weren't required for work, then we that's when we'd read or make up our own games or I'd go walking through the bush. And on the weekends, well, there were no weekends, um, the only difference was we weren't at school, except... Dad would very often come, we'd hear his boots crunch, crunch, crunch across the gravel towards our room, and Melissa and Brett would be so excited because they knew Dad was coming for us and my heart would sink because I knew we were about to get dragged away to go and work. So we'd have to go and get cattle from somewhere in the middle of the school day and then we'd have to make up school on Saturday. So it was a very flexible week as far as Dad was concerned with our school. Mum was the one who put the structure in place, so... We despite all this, you know, when we we're working with cattle in the yards, it was hours from my perspective of boredom. But that's when I was in my head dreaming and making up stories and sitting on the back of a horse you know, after you've been through the excitement of a muster and then you've got four hours of driving the cattle back to the yards and it's hot and you're so thirsty and you're hungry, I would distract myself by going into my imagination. So that was my sort of lifesaver.
1: You said you were able to spend a fair bit of time just wandering out in the in the vast um, areas of, of where you lived and spent a lot of time with horses. What did you – you know, and that it was safe. Um, talk, mm. talk me through those experiences and it just seems so foreign today that somebody would let their children, you know, kind of go off on
2: horseback. And Yes. I think back now um, mum was so busy. She didn't stop from daylight till dark and I remember she had to cook – cakes for Smoko in um big roasting meat roasting pans because there were so many stockmen to feed and you know she was constantly cooking. So for her, us not being there and under her feet was a I think a blessing. Um and there was no sense that children needed to be entertained. I really think there was a view that children were there to work and behave. That was Dad's view anyway. Um but what we kids did when we were out there especially with horses uh, and we had so much time on if we weren't working then we were on our own because there was no adult supervision because nobody supervised their kids then we were expected to know how to ride and look after ourselves if we fell off and do what we had to do um that we made up games and our favorite game in the whole world was um cattle duffers versus the stockman we all called ourselves stockman even we girls we were little stockmen and we had, we'd, um, watched Bush Christmas, which was this amazing movie that t- was turned into a book, um, I think in the late 50s, 60s. And my friend Janie Josen, who lived 700 miles south, her mother was a wonderful writer. Her mother was Helen Grieve and she was the star of Bush Christmas. And it's about these kids out on horseback and they, they're they not dealing with cattle duffers but they're dealing with horse duffers and how they chase these baddies all through the mountains and they get the horses back and so we were just obsessed with this and at the same time there were so many real life stories around us of cattle duffing and there was the old saying got an eye for a neighbor's calf uh, if you had your boundary fence down and somebody was walking along the boundary you know doing a, a run along the boundary and they saw cattle and very often those cattle would end up if they were clean skins they'd end up up on the other side and so cattle duffing was rife in real life and there were so many stories about it. and there was this fantastic show called Cattleman, which was a book and it was made into a radio show that we kids listened to avidly whenever it came on i think half an hour at 4 30 in the afternoon um on the big old radio and so we i think because we had such vivid imaginations we had when we were out and about there was no parental control at all so we, our games became what we knew. And what did we know? We knew cattle, horses, life on the land, and cattle duffing, and baddies. So we created these games, and the horse paddock became our special little area, and we named every part of the horse paddock. There was kangaroo flat, um, there was a house hill, which had an orange tree on the top, and that was home base. And so all these different parts were named and then we'd split into teams, especially if we had friends from other stations come on the, in the school holidays. And then some would be the cattle duffers and some would be the stockmen and then the cattle duffers would be off and the stockmen would have to chase them. We'd gallop around the horse paddock, which is oh, probably five square miles. Like It's a serious bit of space. And then whoever finally got back to the top of House Hill first having either eliminated the cattle duffers <laughs> or the cattle duffers that eliminated us. It was a, there was a whole series of bases upon which you could be eliminated that we made up. Um first back to the top of home hill house hill was the, the winner. And that could take us all after three to four to five hours we could play. And we had the best horses. They just somehow put up with us and you know, we we're yak and yahooing and chasing each other all over the flat and it was, it was live theatre. We were basically actors in our own shows and we loved it. We loved it. We loved it. Honestly, if, if there'd ever been a film crew around there at that time, I'm sure we could have made a little movie because there was nothing we kids couldn't come up with as ideas to um, have fun on horseback. It just sounds so magical and I really want to go back.
1: And be there and be a part of it. It just and you've written about that in your book, and I just couldn't put it down for that story. And I thought that it was actually well, I don't want to give anything away, people. You got to go read the book. But I was on the edge of my seat, and I was like, oh, I just want to be there. Even as an adult now, I'm <laughs> happy to you. go hang out with a bunch of you know eight year olds if that's what's <laughs> going to happen. Um, you know, if I had access to horses right now, I would love to. You know, to if you could remember the rules, if we could like write them down and start getting kids
2: out there playing that again, <laughs> maybe we should. I'll talk to my brothers and sisters, and we'll um, come, we we did we created a couple of gangs. One was the boys were the murder gang, and the girls were I can't remember what. I mean, it was quite graphic, but we but the rule we we wrote out the rules, and they were mostly these rules were. Um, Uh, no fighting (laughs) and the eldest person is in charge and yeah these guys but the rules for the cattle duffers were um you weren't allowed down certain creeks um or in certain parts if you were the cattle duffer um if you were chasing them you couldn't go near their hideouts and there were certain areas that were off limits there were only certain areas you could push the cattle through and if If you push them through any other area, then it was like being offside. They were out of bounds. You could be disqualified. Those kind of things. I mean, they just, we just made them up. It just sounds like so much fun. And like I said, I just want to be there. I just (laughs) want to go. It feels so real as well. I'm there. I'm there in a second. I'm there. (laughs) Just, it's... It was so intense. I think our childhood was really intense. We didn't realise it, but everything we did, we did 150%. What would you say would have been the best part of growing up the way you did? The freedom, absolutely. We we didn't realise we were free at the time because kids just live the life they're living. They don't know any better. We didn't know any different. Um, and mum had a lot of structure that she put into our lives, as I said, but around that it was complete Freedom and we had to work a lot, but within that work, we're, you know, we're everywhere I looked on horseback, wherever we were, you couldn't see anything but scrub and hills. You were so isolated. And so that freedom, that space and the chance to think and to dream, that was, that was the best bit. And I didn't even realize how good it was until later, sadly. I mean, I loved it, but I think. Mostly it's in, with retrospect and hindsight, you realise how good things are. What were the low parts for you? Actually living the life, the, the low parts were the, was the boredom of that grueling, physically hard, um, slog of cattle work. And we worked like young, like men. We were little men doing big men's work. And that was really hard, constantly perishing, constantly hungry. The the grinding boredom. Now, not for my sister and brother brothers, they because they were really horsey and they loved it, but I was a bookish child and I was happiest with a book. So that boredom nearly, I had all the space, but the boredom nearly drove me mad. But I used it. I used it to um, go into my imagination and create stories. So that's how I survived, which served me really well. But the very worst thing without question, um, the very worst thing was then at age 12, being sent away to boarding school and we knew it was coming and every bush child had to go to boarding school because there were no alternatives here at the time. But nothing can prepare you being a bush child, having known no other life to being sent a thousand miles south to a city and to a boarding school of concrete and stone and uniforms. So that, that was and remains to this day the single most difficult thing I've ever had to do with, and all the kids I've spoken to from the bush who have been to boarding school say the same. And I don't – things are a lot better at boarding school now, but back then, you know, these boarding schools were Victorian and they were not prepared to cater for free-spirited kids from the bush who were used to running all the time in jeans and boots and being treated as little adults. And so I often talk to um, those of us who – grew up together and all had to go to boarding school together and everyone feels the same still to this day. Now, this is obviously a huge part of your
1: life and especially during these um, pivotal years, you know, as you're transitioning into an adult and I want to be able to do that justice. So I've already, um, for our listeners, I've already conned Tanya into doing a whole episode just on boarding school with me. (laughs) So we won't get into it too much because I just think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of conversations to be had there, not just so much, you know, With your experiences, but also just, and then talking about it today and what's changed and how it's affected and influenced you. So I will just kind of gloss over that for now and move on to life after boarding school. Oh, yes, please. People will have to, (laughs) people will have to tune in for that story. (laughs) Now, your first book is called Alice to Prague. So obviously you've been to Prague. Yes. Talk me through your travel journey. You know, it seems while you've had, while you had a very adventurous upbringing, Sometimes I think there's a perception out there that if you're from the bush, you kind of just stay in the bush and that's where you are and you don't kind of venture too far um, unless, you know, it's to neighbouring country. So <laughs> you, you went far, far away. Talk me through that.
2: The best part of boarding school led me then to a life um beyond that very narrow possible future that I could have had and, and that was For someone like me, a bookish child, it opened up the opportunity to study. So I ended up in law and then practiced law for many years. Now, law was never my dream job and it still isn't. And I've realized over the years that I was incredibly fortunate to do it because it's led me to all these different opportunities. And even though it wasn't a career that naturally I I wanted to be a journalist and travel the world, be a foreign correspondent, but in a way law gave me perhaps better opportunities than I would have had. And those opportunities included being able to live and work in all different parts of Australia and then to travel. And, of course, I had a mixture of Enid Blyton. Those formative years, all I wanted to do was see the English countryside with its oak trees and its green woods and its meadows with golden daffodils and green grass and blue lakes, these things that I just could only dream about. I was longing to see those. And uh, and School of the Air had really encouraged, as did correspondence School, my writing. So I wrote stories. I wrote stories about the bush blended with these European countries, which was quite ridiculous. They'd be bush kids galloping horses across this meadow and field and then end up down in a smuggler's cove finding treasures and jewels and uh, ridiculous. But I thought it was completely normal to combine these, and as I grew up, those worlds were still really strong in my imagination, so I wanted to see them. Then boarding school gave me this amazing teacher, Mrs Howe, who taught modern European history, and I was fascinated and it was all – the recent history of this century, uh, but said in these countries that I was longing to see. So long story short, I ended up going to teach in Czechoslovakia, triggered by my first trip to Europe where I saw the Berlin Wall fall. And that was... Pivotal. That was life changing because Mrs. Howe in one European history and everyone else I knew said it could never happen. The wall would never fall. Communism would continue to control Eastern Europe forever. And when the wall fell, it was as though I was Alice going down, you know, a the rabbit, rabbit hole. hole and magic could happen and did happen. I thought, I want to get over the other side of that wall. I want to see now I've seen Europe. I want to see what's on the other side. And it took a long time time to do and I had to keep coming back and practicing law to earn enough money because I was constantly broke because everything I earn I spent on travel Uh, but I got this job in Czechoslovakia and it became the Czech Republic just before I arrived the two Slovakia and the Czech split and I went to teach English in a little country town um, called Sedlčany with no knowledge of the background of the Czech Republic no language skills like I couldn't speak Czech of course I I had no teaching English as a second language skill I wasn't a teacher I had no skills whatsoever except that I could speak English um and so I jumped I jumped into this extraordinary adventure escaping law escaping a broken heart yet again which is one of the other great reasons for travel and I ended up through a whole series of events in Prague and fell in love with the place and the country. And by then I was 31. So it had taken me from the end of school and a lot of years practising law and travelling whenever I could and spending money to finding myself in a, a city that just looked like the place of all my childhood fairy tales. And I felt like I'd done this whole circle and I'd arrived back where I'd been as a child immersed in books with palaces and cobbled laneways and castles, and I was just overwhelmed by this. I didn't think such a place really existed, but it did, and there I was. So that's where um, An Adventure That Became Two and a Half Years ended up becoming the book Alice to Prague.
1: Were your parents still involved in the pastoral industry while – this was
2: all happening? Yes, yes, uh, they still are. Well, sadly, we lost Dad last year, but Mum's still there um, on Bond Springs with one of my brothers, and, yeah, they've been involved all along. So
1: how did it – no, I suppose I-, I jumped ahead a bit when I jumped straight to travel, but I suppose we'll go back to you um taking the pathway into law as well you know you've grown up on stations i guess you did say that you were happier with books rather than being in the cattle yards were you encouraged to go and find something else to do
2: or did you or were you encouraged to kind of come back to the station that's such an interesting question um because girls did not inherit when Mm -hmm. i grew up so And I think it's still the case in a lot of places, although fortunately things have moved on. But Melissa and I always knew that the land would not come to us. So that was very hard for Melissa, who could well have lived and made a life there. She loved that bush life so much. But for me, it prompted me to really look at what other options there might be. Having said that, after boarding school, I came home and did a gap year before there were gap years. I, I'm convinced I created a gap year because <laughs> nobody did it back then, but I was so homesick. So I came back and did a whole year back in the stock camp and reliving all that life. But it was mum who, again, she she saw really what I needed to do and she encouraged me to go back. And So I went back and I was accepted into law and did that so I always knew that I had to find another path not that it was really ever spoken about certainly dad never spoke about it it was just known the other option could have been that I came back and worked on the station and then married the boy next door on the next cattle station and raised his stock camp which is what a lot of um girls from the bush did back then and maybe still do because their love is here and they don't want to leave and they don't need to leave and if they find the right bloke and they don't mind raising in stock camp, then that's a, that's the next best thing, I think. Uh, but my path I always knew was going to be different because if I had a choice between a, a book and a desk or being out in the stock camp, I knew which one it would be. <laughs> and so what made you pick law? Because you're obviously
1: a very creative person from a very young age and law isn't necessarily the most Mm. exciting well I mean I guess suppose it can be exciting depending on what kind of law you
2: practice but it's not no you're right it's not exciting and it's why I said it was it's it's never been um you know I never was a lawyer who said yes this is what I want to do the rest of my life um I got talked into it I wanted to be this foreign correspondent and um one of my friends at school said, no, 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 no. You've got to do law. My sister's doing law. And if she can do law, anyone can do law. (laughs) I'm like, what? What does that mean? And my teachers then said, look, the marks for law are higher than journalism. And the process was you you just, you applied for various uh, options. And then whatever your marks came back at at the end of the year, when you've been through your exams, you were allocated to whatever your highest mark choice was. And so I ended up in law really by default. My, my teacher said, you've, you've, you've got the skills for it. It's all because also in high school discouraged creative writing and thinking as well. You know, those five years I became an analytical writer, you know, all the analysis of English literature and history and so forth. So bit by bit that creativity was lost. And then when I ended up in law, there was no room for it. And so I spent much of law very, very depressed and miserable because there was no room for creativity. Um, I worked really hard and I think I was a good lawyer and I got good results, but it wasn't a heart calling. So I ended up doing bits of law enough so that I could earn enough money and then follow my heart, which was to travel to see these places. I didn't have the creativity anymore to write, which is in retrospect, really sad. I didn't realize it at the time, but all I knew was I had to find these places that I'd read about and written about as a child. And that doing that was what led me back to writing eventually. So how did you make
1: that transition from law to being a now twice published author with a third book on the way? And I'm sure there'll be many more to come after Ooh, that.
2: I hope so. Well, sadly, I'm still a lawyer because writing so far doesn't pay the bills. <laughs> I still work on the side and write when I can. But it was coming back from Prague and I was just so passionate about what I'd seen and I wanted people to know the story of the Czechs and what they'd been through. And I didn't know anyone here who knew anything about the Czech Republic and this was 96 I came back. So the internet had only just started. To find this place you had to use, you know, had to find a map in Dad's old encyclopedias Um so I was very passionate about telling that story, but I was still having to practice law. So I started writing whenever I had a free moment. And it took me 15 years to write that first book because I was working the whole time and I couldn't write. I realised that um I can't remember which side of the brain is creative and which is analytical, but Say, for argument's sake, the right side is analytical. That had become so developed. I had, it took 15 years to get the left creative side working again. It was like this old engine, like <laughs> trying to start it up. So I wrote and, wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and I kept sending things out and kept getting rejected. Um, so 15 years and 30 rejections later, I finally, finally, in between working still, Got my creativity back and finished the book and it got accepted. So that was a fairy tale moment that after all this time, I'd, I I haven't got back what I had as a child. It's still the years of law have, I think suppressed it and it's gone so deep. I don't, I long for it to come back. I long for it, but I haven't yet been able to get, but I've been able to get enough back so that I can return to those places I remember and write about them as though I'm back there. So that was a great thing about writing Alice to Prague. I was there back in Prague the whole time. Then when I wrote An Alice Girl, I was back as a child. So it it really helped the creative juices flow. And my dream is one day, one day eventually, that real just boundless imagination that had no constraints will return.
1: I was just thinking, as you said, fifteen years and thirty rejection letters. It's like, well, if that's not the ultimate case of delayed gratification, yeah. I don't know what is. Yes. How how did you keep pushing on after you know maybe if you go oh one two three well I'll just keep having a crack but then you're like twenty third letter twenty
2: fourth letter twenty ninth letter how do you what made you keep going? Um, I I think it all comes back to that childhood discipline that. You've got to get the cattle back to the dam. It doesn't matter how perishing you are and how far it is. Your job this afternoon is to get those cattle back to water, back to the dam, into the yards. And there's no such thing as can't. There's no such thing as giving up in the bush. You give up, you die. And I think that that internal discipline from that childhood was what kept driving me. The passion, my desire to tell this story was so strong. Maybe that had, the creativity was all bound up in that passion. And each time, oh, I, I cried and I thought I was a failure and hopeless and it was a waste of time. And I'd go into the metaphorical cupboard and I'd put you know, the the manuscript in the metaphorical bottom drawer. But this story really wanted to be told. It was like two days later, tap, 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 tap on my shoulders. It was like the story was coming back and saying, okay, enough of that, back to work, back to work. And that's all I have in my head is back to work, back to work. It's And I think it's been there since childhood. So I can thank those endless, hideous, hot days of driving cattle for the discipline to pursue and persevere and eventually get there I just even if I thought I could give up the overriding thing was you will not give up and you will keep going until you get the cattle back to the dam to water (laughs) or the book to the publisher (laughs) or the book to the publisher whatever it may be and in this case that's what it was and my joy at having got there it felt like a validation of all those childhood dreams and imaginings and the stories that I wrote as a child, all I wanted to be was a writer as a child and then it became a foreign correspondent which was writing stories about other people but it was the same theme and I writing the books combined both really, that desire to write stories and then Alistair Prang was telling stories about people from another land and then an Alice Girl was telling stories about the people I grew up here who for most Australians might as well come from another land because Central Australia in the 60s and 70s is just you know, most people on the coast and in cities just can't even comprehend it.
1: No, it certainly is like another world and I think it would be fair if people assumed that you had some sort of or some level of disadvantage growing up that way, you know, having a half hour less a day going to school over a two-way radio, never really getting to socialise with other children except your siblings. But I think you are the case in point that it there wasn't a disadvantage for you because you have gone on to lead this incredible life where you are, um, like, disciplined, you're very well educated, um, you have a stellar career, you are well-travelled, as anybody listening can hear, well-spoken. And <laughs> now, you know, so I think there's there's the traditional measures of success, so you've got, you know, career um Education and then and then I suppose beyond the law career now you've got the the authoring or
2: is that a word? Or th- well, it could be a word. Let's, yeah, make, it let's a word. make it a word. Let's make it a word. Let's make it a word of the day. Yeah, I like it. What, authoring, authoring, prachne, yes. um, so 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 as we'd say in Czech. Prachne, why not? Yeah,
1: <laughs> I can't roll my ass so I cannot. I cannot I, say that.
2: It took me a long time to
1: learn. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got those traditional measures of success, and then I think you. You know, I don't know you too well, but I think you, you look fairly happy and fulfilled and, you know, the other, the other measures of success that we don't tend to really focus on. I, I, but that may surprise some people thinking that, you know, oh, you're just some little bush kid that grew up in the bush way back when, you know, um, and, but look at where life has taken you. Talk to me about that and, you know, Everything you've achieved, and I'm going to use quotation marks here,
2: despite your upbringing <laughs> and despite the the barriers and the challenges that you had. So it, that's a very interesting question because the School of the Air tell me now that their most often asked question from tourists who come in are, "Did any of these kids ever go on to do anything?" And I find that remarkable. Uh, and, of course, I was outraged, outraged. But that is the perception that it is a disadvantage. And, look, in the 60s and 70s, you could say it was a disadvantage, half an hour on the radio, and then we had our correspondence school lessons with the governess um every day from 7.30 in the morning to 1 o'clock, but it was just with my sister and brother in a little classroom. But I think I was incredibly lucky to have that childhood because it gave me so many skills without realising it that helped me survive boarding school, uh, helped me survive the study of law, which I didn't understand because I didn't really know why I was doing it. Uh, so I just learnt to apply that hard work ethic and got through, just through that really, rather than, I mean, I think I finished law without really understanding still what law was particularly <laughs> about. Then when I went into the practice of law, uh, I started in Darwin because I was desperate to come back to the Territory and I'd only been working for about three months um, and I got pulled onto the Chamberlain Inquiry. And the Chamberlain Inquiry arose uh, when a a backpacker fell off Ayers Rock and died and they found Lindy Chamberlain's, or I should say Zaria Chamberlain's matinee jacket, Next to this poor dead tourist and Lindy had always maintained Azaria wore this. When they, they found this, it seems a miracle really, that's where it was. Um, Lindy was led out of jail and an inquiry into her convictions was held. This ended up being an 18 month, um, inquiry all over Australia. And I was this young thing, just hold on to that to do, you know, all the running around work. Um, I, I was with for the crown at that time, so I had the lofty title of junior instructing solicitor. But what it meant was for the 18 months, I had to bring all those skills really of incredibly hard work to support a team of barristers. And they were the best barristers in Australia, the cream, the cream of the silks and to know how to run an office and how to bring people with me and how to work with witnesses and it was a crash course in um, I suppose court life but more than that it it uh, it had a cast of thousands and it it had the media the media were completely embedded with all the players of both prosecution and defense and there were pro media and uh, against media for Lindy and I observed all of this and I was flexible enough to go with it and I think part of that was because I just, you know, when you're growing up in the bush, you have to be so resourceful. You can't rely on people. You have to work things out yourself. If your horse stumbles or if there's a snake or, you know, cattle are lost, cattle are perishing, you you have to have that internal resourcefulness to, to make things work. So I think that really helped me. If I hadn't had that background, I'm sure I would have struggled a lot. Um, so that was an extraordinary experience. And then Lindy was, or um, the convictions were quashed, that she should never have been convicted on the evidence. And so that really opened my eyes to the media again because then I got, to, because I'd had these 18 months of working closely with the media and I'd wanted to be a journalist myself, that really reignited the hunger in me for Travel and learning about other people's stories, and so that's also when I I got to travel overseas. That I was in a, a bar in London when the Berlin Wall fell. We saw it happening on a television. And I said to my friend Michael, who who I was staying with at the time, "Quick, we've got to, we've got to get to Berlin and see this." And he said, "Don't be ridiculous. I've got to go to work tomorrow." He worked for Oxfam, and again, I think my background of just you seize the moment, you you have a go. I said, "This is history changing." before our eyes Michael we got the two last seats on a flight into Berlin the next morning with the world's media and saw the wall falling before our eyes and an East German soldier hacked out a bit of wall for me and I carried that wall back to Australia and put it on my desk because I had to go back to law because I was so broke again to inspire me to when I went back to law to to work hard to earn enough so I could travel again and then travel and I always traveled alone and I think now oh Oh, that was so dangerous. And when you travelled then, you had no contact with back with Australia. You had little um, telephone cards that cost a fortune that you could stand in a phone box and reverse charges to home. Otherwise, it was letters, you know, uh, assuming anyone knew where to send you a letter. So I travel alone I was, and I was on my own and it was because I just, I wanted to explore. I was so hungry to see what life was like out there. And I'm convinced that growing up in that space and isolation, being the eldest, I had innate, um, skills that I didn't realize at the time. If you'd asked me any of this back then, I would have stared at you, um, <laughs> completely unknowingly and I would have had no answers for you. But in retrospect, I think that really Helped and then I've lived in many different places and practiced law in many different places and um run my own consultancy and again I think the background of you know growing up having to be so self-sufficient enabled me to do that. And then my last major role before coming back here was I had to build an in-house team for a, a company in Perth um that was owned by the Wright family, a very wealthy family who were partners of Gina Reinhardt. Um and there was a, a basically a number of cases that the Wright family had brought against Gina for stealing their assets. That's it in a nutshell. So I had to build this. Legal t- so I had uh, eight in-house staff and 35 external lawyers that I managed and we had a budget of $16 million per annum for the legal cases which were at the High Court. So, again, we had the cream of the silks. And i don 't think I could have done any of that if i hadn't had this progression of adventures along the way that all stemmed from such a such such an isolated childhood where we had to be resourceful and we had to have a go. I was just
1: thinking as you 've been speaking that It sounds like you are an incredibly resourceful person. You may not have grown up with many resources, but you were resourceful with what you had and you've carried that through your entire life. I can just imagine also... When you said that it was um, dangerous for you to be travelling on your own, like I know that I'm sure you're a fierce woman and you can hold your own, but you're also <laughs> the teeniest, tiniest <laughs> little pixie I've ever seen. So it probably wouldn't be too hard to, to take you down. <laughs> it's it's true. But it's just true. having – I feel like you would be one of those street smarts person though, like just resourceful, like be able to read a situation – you know, just, just street smart. I feel, I feel like that could come from, that would come from your childhood and, and, you know, being around the people you were growing up and the
2: things you had to do and, Maybe, although interestingly, I think the one skill I didn't have was being street smart. Oh, really? Yeah, that was the one. So cities. Yeah. Uh, I was, I wandered through cities like this wide eyed child, and it's a miracle I went through all these different cities unscathed because I had no awareness or sense of being street smart. I just was in these places that I'd read about, and I, I was just like a wide-eyed child oh, with wow. not a brain in my head. Some of the places that I went and I ended up having the most extraordinary adventures. But it's true. I'm so, um, so short. So under five foot. I won't actually admit my height to you, Stephanie. It is under five foot. Just pixie. Just, just Tinkerbell. Just tinkerbell, tinkerbell. Tinkerbell. But that made it very hard in law. Very, very hard. So female and small. And, um, law is such an aggressive, um, quite misogynistic, definitely, um, male driven, um, field. So I struggled there a lot in all the different areas of law that I worked in. But again, what I, what got me through, I think was that resourcefulness and that capacity to work hard and also to, one thing, I think you've touched on this in a way, it's learning to read a situation and see what's yeah. needed. Now, I didn't have those street smarts when I was wandering around beautiful old cities, but when it came to working with people, um, I think I had that intuitive sense of always looking for what's needed, what needs to be done, how do I manage this, and that's probably what got me through. It's a good thing that your ability to
1: practice law and your brain, your intelligence, your spirit is not correlated at all to your height or your size. (laughs) Like, because you abound – while you may not abound in height, you have the spirit and fierceness and intelligence. (laughs) So – it's a Thank good you thing, you know, you. I can understand that some people might be like, oh, she's just this little lady, you know, but <laughs>
2: height does not equal ability or capacity. It, it is true. I have been told that I, uh, that, what's the expression, that um, people have been surprised, um, that I, I have surprised them that they did not expect to get this fierce little lion or this <laughs> really determined advocate um, and, and I do remember somebody once saying to me that they they only knew me over the phone, and then when they met me, they couldn't believe their eyes. <laughs> so there you go. If anybody's listening to this and you see me, I'll be the very small one in the street. Yeah, <laughs> but fierce,
1: don't mess with this lady. Now, you did just mention that you relocated, you started off law in the territory, and then recently you've relocated back to Alice. You have traveled all over the world. You've lived all over the place. What is it that brought you back? You know, you, and like you said, you're an accomplished lawyer. You could be practicing anywhere you want. What makes you come back to Alice Springs of all places?
2: I think it's the full circle again. It felt like the time in my life, I needed to come home to this land. I'm so connected to this land. So wherever I lived, I would have to come home. Two to three times a year minimum to get my fix of the land and family. When I lived overseas, that wasn't possible. But wherever I've lived in Australia, I, I've had to come home all the time because I'm, I miss it so much. It's the place I feel strong and connected and where I really belong. And I've lived in so many places and I've tried to find a real base for myself in places and I've, you know, found basis, but nothing, nothing holds me like this land. It's the, those years of walking it, um, as a child and connecting with it. It's the place I feel safest and strongest. But the reason actually for making this the time was that, um, my incredibly fierce, accomplished father was dying and it just seemed impossible that he could die. But, uh, it felt like the time to come back to support him and the family and to bring the skills that I'd developed over the years back to helping him and mum um, at that time. And so we've been back three and a half years and I my very, very wonderful long-suffering husband, <laughs> he travels everywhere with me. He He's in marketing and he came back and luckily um, tourism marketing is a big thing in Alice. So Uh, We've been here for three and a half years and I've been working, running my own consultancy, back to running my own consultancy again, but, and working with the family and helping them through the transition of losing dad last year, which I, I, there is nothing to describe. Um, that my, it felt like that landscape tilted because it was dad who, you know, brought us here. And I have fixed in my memory us standing there as, he was loaded into the car because he died at home to be driven, not just driven away but driven off his land for the last time. It was unbearable. It, it will be like the greatest wound inside me, I think, for the rest of my life thinking he's gone, he's never coming back from this land that he loved so much. Uh, and those kind of things in a way... um, They change your perspective. So life here is not what it was, but the land is and my family's here. And most of all, it's given me the chance to finish writing. And I'm not sure, looking back now, whether I could have written these books and finished them. Uh, in the same way if Dad was still here, especially not an Alice girl because there were lots of frank and feeler stories in that that I might have been too scared to put in if Dad was still alive but coming back to this land helped me finish the writing so that first book Al- Alice to Prague that took fifteen years that fifteenth year was here in Alice and that's when I got it I was back here and I was able to to finish it so I've been working nonstop and writing nonstop and um Grieving non stop and you know all these things bound together, but it feels like a blessing. I feel so grateful to be back on, on this landscape in this land amongst these hills where I feel so connected. I don't. I have lived a gypsy life. It's a very, been a very peripatetic life, so I don't know how long. A bit like you, <laughs> um, Steph, because you move all the time. But we're here for the moment, and I just feel so grateful because it also enabled me to write my third book about boarding school, which is all about having to leave the land and longing for it, and then coming back to it. Did Bond Springs stay in your family the entire time? Like, has it has it
1: stayed mm-hmm. with you? Yes. So, what an incredible legacy and life your father and your parents have built. Yes. You know, you talking about him driving off his land for the last time, I was trying not to (laughs) hold it together. But, you know, at the beginning you said they were given three years, you know, they came up here in their early 20s, put everything they had on the line, were prepared to walk away with not just nothing but probably less than what they started Um, with, and then to think that this is how it ended up. What, if he came up in the 60s, what are we talking 60 years later? Yeah,
2: he was, um, eight, he, not quite 80. Yeah. Not quite 80. So 60 so years. B- yeah. he, oh God, now we're both going to
0: be Yeah. 60
2: odd years, he and mum. Um. So not worked. only
1: did he make it work past those three years, he kept it going. Yes, till till this present day where it's still going. When everybody yes. else said it would be unviable. Yes, and then he raised. I mean, I haven't met your siblings, but you are, you know, which I know is part him and obviously part your mum. So if she's listening, you've done a good job, <laughs> Mrs. Heslop. <laughs> She'll oh, be very glad oh, to that, know that. that. That is that your
2: yes Heslop. Yes, I get, good. yes. <laughs> oh no, what if I just called her the wrong name? No, no. I I I didn't change my name. Um for a couple of reasons one it was my sort of brand for yeah. all those years i was working as a lawyer and i didn't want to change it but also um because i was such a gypsy and i was forever having broken hearts and traveling all over the place i didn't actually find and marry my good husband till i was 40 i thought i'm not changing my surname at 40 that's ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> i love it i like these stories they give me hope
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um We've covered so much in this episode. I can't wait for the next, like, 400 episodes that Oh, we record. my goodness. It's going to be yeah. so good. You can't. I know where you live now. You can't <laughs> escape me. And if not, I'll just rock up to Bond Springs and yes. camp out with Mama Bear. But I've got a couple of questions um, just to wrap this
2: up. And the first one is what do you do to look after yourself? Probably like a lot of people, I'm not as good – at looking after myself as I should be but my number one go-to rescue remedy is walking in the bush that's the number one um, and I try really hard to meditate and I'm not very good at that because I have such an overactive mind but I've found these wonderful guided meditations which I normally fall to sleep Listening to, which probably defeats the whole purpose. But when I'm very stressed with work or there are issues happening, I find listening to a voice that guides me walking down, you know, a lake and by a river and you know down to a waterfall. It does take me back to those childhood books, and then I, um, that's really helpful. And massage, I can never, ever, ever get enough massages, and there's the most wonderful, wonderful. Um, chiropractor in town called Dr. Glenn Liu, who's been here forever and he keeps, keeps my writing, you know, joints and muscles in shape because I get very sore. Uh, but I think most of all, um, is, and, and is walking, but reading the chance to read. That's my, my escapism. And I don't do all the, the things that other people do really well, like cooking and gardening. I, I don't have. Any skills in those areas. So I played my strengths <laughs> and try and avoid going there too much. The more you speak, the more I'm like,
1: this is my spirit yeah. animal. Like <laughs> you're my twin. I love it. Now, what is a book that has changed your life or that you give to other people because it's just so important and you think other people really should read it?
2: Perhaps the one that's had the greatest influence on me has been called You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay, which I came across in the 90s when I was in my um, early 30s. And I think I struggled for much of my career with self-confidence and being a girl in law, especially up here. I mean, when I practice law, There were four girls and about, you know, a hundred blokes. So you can imagine young female lawyer, very small, how intimidating that was and how hard it was to have self-confidence. I'd go to, I'd throw up before going into court. I'd be so afraid. So this book is all about, um, just coming to terms with who you are and accepting who you are and healing those parts of yourself that feel afraid and not good enough. There are lots of different ways the books can be used, but I go back to that book over and it's very, very simple and it's very simply written, but it's it for me was about reminding myself that I was, you know, good enough as I was and help me with self-confidence. In a I mean of all the professions to pick, law has to be one of the most difficult, the, the most male dominated, the most misogynistic. But then again, I'd grown up with entirely men in the stock camp. So I did have something to, to call on, but that book has, has, I've, I've still got it. And, uh,
1: to finish up, reflecting back on not just the conversation we've had today, but I suppose by writing these two books and you're working on your third, you have been able to spend a lot of time reflecting on your life. What would you say you have learned along the way? What is the standout message
2: or or lesson? I suppose have confidence in yourself. I feel that so much of my life, I, you know, was scrambling for self confidence. I didn't feel confident to do so many things. I probably did them anyway and I forced myself to do them, but some people are blessed with an abundance of self confidence and I, I, I wonder if I'd gone on and just written books and become a journalist, which is what I always wanted to do, whether I would have struggled so much. There I would have been following my natural bent and maybe I wouldn't have found um, work so hard. I But law was, uh, for me, uh, just an ongoing uh, struggle of self-confidence all the time. Um But... You know, he taught me so much. So I think believing, have self confidence that you can do something even though you think you can't, because everything I tried to do, I managed to do, even if I didn't think that I could. And from that, have self confidence in yourself is the subtext of have confidence in your dreams and your leanings and your inclinations and your desires. So the things that call to your heart, even if they're not popular, even if your parents think they're a wrong or a waste of time. Even if it goes against the grain, listen to them, honour them, follow them, and that's what it was for me with my writing. So it's taken me a very long time to come back to what I always wanted to do, like a very long time. I'm, how old am I? I can't remember. I'm 58. Oh, my God, that feels so hot. But it's taken me all this time. Um, but maybe I had to do this in this lifetime because maybe I had to learn the skills I had to learn and have the adventures I had in order to be able to write the books. So it's it's something you don't know, but that's a long, circuitous answer to believe in yourself, believe that you can do it, even if you think you can't, and then listen to whatever those dreams are and try and follow them, even if it takes you a long time to finally bring them to fruition.
0: Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations Team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry. While providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au